brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Janelle. I'm Vicky. I hope you're ready for yeah. something extravagant. Dude, this is going to be real fun. Opulence. I'm just trying to think of all the words. <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited for this episode. I had a lot of fun with this Did one. Did you? Yes. Right. Yes. Sometimes I pick stuff and you're like, what the fuck? So I was not the beginning. Most of the time it's like it starts off like that in the beginning mm-hmm. and then I end up finding something really rad that I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be really fun. All right. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're back with another episode. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We are going to head over to the newsroom. Our news this week comes from South Hill, Washington, from KRIO 7, uh, where a woman was mad about her breakfast burrito. Yeah, I can, I can relate on that. <laughs> <laughs> so... She entered a drive-thru around 9 a.m. She got a ordered breakfast burritos. Um, a, a couple hours later, she came back and told the restaurant that she was mad that the burritos didn't have as much meat and egg in them as last time. Okay. The employee who was speaking with her offered a refund, but she was like, no, I want more burritos. And the employee was like, well, we stopped serving breakfast. Mm-hmm. So she got... Mad went out to went out to her car, got a drink and a bag of burritos, brought them back in and threw them at the employee. Okay. 
hitting her right in the head. Um, she also threatened the employee saying, my husband's going to come beat you up. <laughs> and <laughs> they called 911, but by the time they called 911 that she, she had left. So mm-hmm. woman gets mad, throws burritos. That's is this a, in Florida? <laughs> Uh, no, this is in Washington, South okay. Hill, Washington. Yeah, <laughs> I just thought like when I think of food throwing at people, I automatically go to Florida. <laughs> For real, yeah. Didn't specify the restaurant or the woman's name, but just listen, guys. Can we just be kind to uh, to uh, service workers? Yeah, please. As someone who worked at Starbucks for a very long time in college, yeah, just you're be nice. not special. Okay, no. none of you are. <laughs> just be nice to your service workers. <laughs> Um, all right, moving on. This week, we have a bloody good read. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> um, so I've been reading The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by okay. Jeff Gunn. He is a New York Times bestselling author, previously of a book called Manson. Um, but this covers Jim Jones from... It, it's actually, it's a really interesting history. It covers Jim Jones from his childhood, his relationship with his family and his mom, which is like a little wild. Mm-hmm. Covers his parents' history, like how she married into, uh, married to Jim Jones' father and kind of everything through him starting his ministry and sort of the tactics that he used leading up to moving to Guyana, um, where ultimately he poisoned hundreds of people, uh, leaving them to die. Mm-hmm. Fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, as many of you know, of course, uh, People's Temple and Jonestown is like one of my OG, like, uh, most fascinating cults. Yeah. Um, so it's I, wild. It's it is. so fucking wild. It is. And honestly, reading this book, like, makes it even more wild because it does go into sort of the intricate histories between, like, the members and Jim Jones and how things changed as he was running the church. Mm-hmm. You can definitely see this, like, slow um, lead up to him just being totally paranoid moving to Guyana and cutting everybody else off from society. Like mm-hmm. it's very evident what was happening now, of course, knowing, knowing what the ultimate result is seeing everything beforehand. It's like, Oh yeah. Like how do we not recognize this? But at the time you have to remember, like the dude was a pioneer also mm-hmm. ultimately like Jim Jones goal was to create this socialist utopia where people of all different races could worship together and work in a society together um, where there wasn't any, you know, racial injustice. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of his stuff was racial injustice. Yeah. Um, And he was one of the few preachers at the time to allow uh, black people and white people to congregate together mm-hmm. or really encourage that. So it's interesting to see because it could have been something so good for society, honestly, mm-hmm. had he yeah. not gone crazy. Yeah. But this is, I, I really, really love this book. It was, like I said, a, a great comprehensive history. If it's something you're interested in. Again, it's called The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple by Jeff Gwynn. Um, it's available on, you can buy the book on Amazon, but it's also available on Audible as an audiobook. Uh, check it out. This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Uh, Janelle, what are we talking about this week? I don't know. Mine's PG, so. <laughs> Mine is like, 
Mine's so fucking PG-13. I almost didn't want to do it. No. <laughs> I, you know, mine's pretty fun, but there's still murder. Okay. So okay. Okay. take that for what you will. <laughs> I went more a white collar crime route. Okay. okay. So in case you are completely fucking oblivious, I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm really fascinated by, like, the absolute batshit crazy people that I come in contact with in this, like, profession. We're going to put quotes on that. Uh, (laughs) I meet, like, really amazing, wonderful, talented, beautiful individuals. Yeah. And then I also meet some... There's a lot of weirdos. Hardcore wackadoos. um, Misogynists. So I've met a lot of, like, really crazy people, a lot of misogynists, a lot of artists who just want to fuck you. Uh (laughs) It's weird because I feel like artists kind of land on this spectrum where you do, like you said, you have a lot of these, like, really cool people Mm -hmm. who just love making art or, you know, and then there is, like, a weird ed where it's, like, kind of these... Just utter depravity. (laughs) Yeah. People who have been rejected by society because Mm -hmm. they're fucking weird or misogynist or racist. Like, yeah. Yeah. But the one big thing that it also attracts is uh, fucking thieves. (laughs) Also that, yeah. All kinds of grifters and drifters and thieves. Uh, So this is why I thought we could look at some uh, artsy-fartsy crimes for this particular episode. Yes. Vicky, were you a watcher of SpongeBob SquarePants as a child? Oh my god, girl. I am still a watcher of SpongeBob SquarePants. Do you enjoy living in a pineapple under the seat? And, oh my god. Aye, aye, Captain. Was SpongeBob a swinger? <laughs> oh my god. That was into my brain. That's funny. Maybe. He lived then- in a pineapple. But then what does the tiki head represent? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I will tell you, I have a very, very uh intimate relationship with spongebob no um, oh he is yeah. a swinger no, i grew up watching spongebob oh, yeah. i am it was essential huge fan huge huge fan i still watch old episodes i mm-hmm. saw the spongebob movie the first one not the 3d shitty one but yeah. the first original one that was really good with david hasselhoff mm-hmm. um in theaters <laughs> i have seen the spongebob musical i mm-hmm. went and saw that like two years ago uh, yeah. It's on Paramount Plus if you want to watch it. Nice. It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Really good. Um, but needless to say, like I owned the SpongeBob soundtrack. Okay. There was a soundtrack. That might be far. <laughs> like I, the amount of SpongeBob memorabilia like mm-hmm. that I had was and is insane. I am a big fan. Needless yeah. to say. Big, so, big fan. So the artist that we're going to look at is one of the main artists behind SpongeBob, Todd White. Okay, so I am not familiar with this at all. If you're familiar with Spongebob, there are lots of episodes that take on all of these really interesting kind of artistic, Mm. you know, deviations. Mm -hmm. There was like live action episodes, all of the little title cards that say like five hours later, two days later, Mm -hmm. like of all of these different sort of different artistic Uh, aspects to them and it's because of all of the different artists and illustrators that were cooperating on um spongebob squarepants so this is just one of the many artists because they had a lot cool Um, yeah so todd white was born in texas in 1969 and came from a family of painters um i feel like there's a lot of people who are artists who come from families of art who are just like well that's what i have to do it's very interesting are they still as good as (laughs) No, usually not. (laughs) Usually not. Um, 
Now I'm going to read like a little bio from his website because okay. it's always interesting to hear artists talk about themselves and their backgrounds because it is more often than not very false. Yeah. I imagine <laughs> a lot of exaggerated. like aggrandizing, <laughs> mm-hmm. making it, you know, yes. a little Grandiose. bit more. Mm-hmm. Yes. So this is this is his bio off of his website. Okay. During his 20s, he re- relocated to Hollywood and worked in the animation field, developing characters at some of the most renowned production studios in the country. He was even part of the lead team for the international hit cartoon series SpongeBob SquarePants. Woo. During this period, Todd started to forge his artistic style by experimenting with style and concept. He eventually arrived at the working method that now guides him through every piece. He always names his piece first, visualizes faces and personalities, then develops each person's story. In fact, he doesn't paint at all until he can conceptually see the story in his head. And he always tells it as directly as possible. What isn't necessary to the story doesn't go on the canvas. Hands are a focal point and is always impressed by how powerfully and expressively tiny gesticulations can amplify an actor's performance. Okay. Everyone's hands are full of personality, says Todd. Okay. They reflect the subject's state of mind almost as much as facial expressions. As an Italian, yes. <laughs> this he, makes me, so far, this makes me not like him. Exactly. I'm just like, ooh. It's very grown You're an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. He's a compulsive observer of detail, always studying and absorbing figures, faces, and features. Subconsciously, he spends his life people-watching, scribbling down sketches, whatever the situation, often on napkins and tablecloths, to record an idea for his next work. (laughs) I have a lot of feelings about this, as you can tell, by the delivery. His paintings captivate people. They often invoke laughter and demand repeated viewings. I have never. Okay. (laughs) By revealing his subject's innermost feelings, he creates timeless scenes of attraction and intimacy. Beneath the exaggerated features and textured skin of his characters, there is truth. (laughs) Both theirs... And ours. SpongeBob stands for truth. Right? Truth and justice. (laughs) Todd's subjects come from the everyday world, but his perspective is so unusual that he alters the way we perceive people and the roles we play around each other. He studies body language, using its nuances to capture the subtleties of what people show and hide. (sighs) Wow. So. Gross. That was his bio. That was gross. (laughs) Now, when you are an artist, you have to write a lot about your work. And a lot of times artists fall into this whole art speak mind suck where you're just talking about like juxtapose the liminality of my being, blah, blah. And I just, it makes me want to slap all the things. Yeah. So all of his descriptions are just gobbledygook art speak. Yeah. Just being regurgitated over and over and over again. He paints figures. (laughs) he's a figure painter yeah Uh uh-huh yep has a very kind of like 60s mod feel to it that's what he does yeah oh my god i've seen a thousand men paint the exact same way so (laughs) uh, i say men particularly because it is a very kind of uh female-centered voyeuristic uh look to a lot of his work I'm po- I'm googling his paintings so right now. Anyway, so that I could. Um, so I went through and read a lot of like interviews too. Um, oh, yeah, very divergent from SpongeBob SquarePants. 
Um, he mentioned in several of his interviews that he had days early in his career where he slept in his car and he was the typical starving artist. Um, and like, I get it. Being an artist is not easy. There's a lot of hustle involved, but I feel like he's exaggerating a lot of his life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, some of the ways he described working and art honestly really do truly make me gag. I, I, there was a point where I was reading stuff where I was like, uh, Mm, I don't know if I want to cover this because it's just the way he's talking makes me uncomfortable. Um, he was quoted as saying he sits down to get the ideas out of him and he thinks to himself, this is going to be the greatest painting ever. So the balance of an artist's ego and selfishness like within themselves is like a very thin line that you teeter on. Like me personally, when I'm working I'm like, this is going to be fucking shit. Yeah. Shit, how do I convey this fucking idea? This message is not going to get across. My lived experience is not everyone's lived experience. You spiral out of control. Yeah. Um, And then then you bring the ego into it when you're done. You're like, this is so fucking good. Sure. Right? But he has the ego from the start. So he just like, he never thinks anything he does is going to be bad. So I'm setting you up to kind of understand exactly how the rest of this happens. I will say, just from looking at, I'm looking at a series of his paintings right uh-huh. now. <laughs> Not my favorite. No. They're, be bo- they're boring. <laughs> all, they all look the same. Yep. And I get like, <laughs> you know, as an artist, like you generally have a certain style. Like you uh, can get, but if you're a good artist, you don't. <laughs> yeah. But the, but you the thing is like movements. If you're a good yeah, artist, <laughs> you can even have a certain style and still have everything look different. You mm-hmm. know, like there is definitely that. And I find that more interesting. Yeah. These just are not that interesting to me. Exactly. And I feel like that also is a really catch 22 with a lot of people. They want to be recognized. And so they think that yeah. just making the exact same thing over and over and over again is going to make them more recognizable and have recognition as an artist. But it just makes you boring. And your work falls flat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So his female figure focused paintings, they just they just look self-absorbed and generic to me. So on top of being an artist, he is also a fourth degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and owns a gym. So oh again, big put off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. You're an artist and you do jiu-jitsu. I'm over it. Uh, he also had an interview with um, Joe Rogan. I did not listen to it, but I was just like, don't waste your time. I'm just going to be like, yeah, I know exactly where this is going. Um, they're going to talk about jujitsu and then art and how pretentious assholes they are. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, you'll go through the whole interview. Joe Rogan will not ask any hard questions. Or questions at all. <laughs> that'll be that. Yeah. So boring. Um, so that's why I find like his entire life is why I find this whole next bit, this case, fucking hilarious. You know, it's an as an artist, it's a dream to like have representation by a gallery or to have backing by a specific gallerist um, in some capacity. But that also can mean that they kind of sort of like own you in a way. So it's a very slippery slope to stardom and like maintaining oneself like sense of self in their work and having a gallery represent you can be a blessing and a curse. So Margaret Peggy Howell was just that. She was a gallerist trying to make a splash. She owned Gallery HB in Huntington Beach, California. And in an article according to Vanity Fair, we're going to see how they met. 
how they clashed. <laughs> okay. When SpongeBob went on hiatus, White channeled that spirit into his own fledgling art career, vying for respect in the insular LA gallery circle. He traveled the city peddling paintings of his own imagined universe. Martini-soaked scenes of natty cads and sultry vixens. I want to vomit at that sentence. Yeah. He sold works from the back of his pickup truck outside of art fairs until the police escorted him away and hustled them into hang in influ- influential bars like Nick's Martini Lounge, the Agent Hub in Beverly Hills. In 2003, at an art show in Los Angeles, while White met Peggy Howell, who showed an immediate and intense interest in his work. Howell and White had plenty in common. Like him, she was a self-made go-getter from the South and an army brat from Arkansas, who after a career in corporate architecture, clawed her way up the art market. Barf. Peggy (laughs) was a hustler, White says. She was a mover, a shaker. She could sell art. White recalls Howell telling him that she had once convinced a gowned bride in the bathroom of the Hyatt to buy one of White's pieces before her wedding ceremony began. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sure. Howell was just as impressed by White's ambition. He was absolutely determined to be one of the top living artists, she says. And I could see it in his eyes. Howell, who introduced herself to White's friends as Mama Peg, (laughs) took an almost material interest in the rising star. She was also his passionate promoter, transforming the Hyatt Gallery from a second-rate tourist shop to a destination for well-heeled patrons of Orange County. She wanted to be Todd's number one gallery. This is the whole aspect of art making in the art world that just confuses me and irritates me to no end. It's like there are two separate worlds – The world of actual real living artists and those of this like hoity-toity, like bullshit carnival. It's like, it's it's just like, it's like used car salesmen hawking their wares and whoever can scream the loudest is the winner. Yeah. And I hate it. Yeah. (laughs) And you see this in a lot of industries that I would say um, are more exclusive mm-hmm. more like for the wealthy so we're talking not just art but we're talking wine yeah we're talking plants mm-hmm. we're talking food like we're ta- i mean like these things that are like meant to be the sort of status symbol when you get further out from like you know the average artist mm-hmm. who is you know putting on their own shows and doing you know really hustling Mm -hmm. as you would know yes (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean like i think there is like this huge difference between those two things Mm -hmm. oh a thousand percent yeah and you know gallerists for the most part not all but for the most part are basically like just like super shady Mm -hmm. like they're all shady We've talked about, like, countless counterfeit art issues and provenance problems and forgery before. Um, And it's really because, like, I feel that a lot of these gallery owners start getting too big for their britches. Mm -hmm. And they're, like, all about, I have to curate this perfect list of people who are collectors. I need a collector's list. If I don't have a collector's list, if I don't have these people constantly coming back, I'm never going to make any money. And I'm always going to be in the red. And that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this – I will say, too, like, I think this is also why you see – more crime in those areas like mm-hmm. in the upper echelon of the art world like that's going to be where you're that's why at. there are art specific lawyers yeah okay? we've definitely talked about this that is before how yeah. fucked up this is <clears throat> um you know art is also what you really want to invest in and buy when you want to wash your money mm-hmm. when you want to 
hide your money, you're going to buy art. (laughs) Yeah. And not to mention the fact that the art market isn't really a market at all. It's literally a racket. It is controlled by a small quantity of gallerists and collectors who dictate where it goes, when it goes, and who goes. Mm -hmm. So back to the story. (laughs) So White started to really hit it big, and his work started selling like crazy, so much so that he couldn't produce it fast enough. So he started selling gicle copies. I hate that word. Um, I've never heard that. So I will tell you. Okay. What a gicle copy is. Um, It was a bit of a new thing. Uh, The process takes a high-resolution digital photo of a painting and prints it directly onto canvas. It is then embellished with varnish to give the illusion of brushstrokes and hand-numbered and signed by the artist to demonstrate its authenticity. So it's basically like making a copy of the art. Is it like faking a copy of the artwork? It's not faking. It's an accepted form of copying artwork. It's like a print yeah. for printmakers where you have the original print and then you have numbered copies. And okay. the more numbered the copies are, the less desirable it is because there's so many in circulation. Gotcha. Kind of like money. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so um, it became a new thing around this time period to really start pre- like pushing gicle prints. Um, you can have regular prints on regular, like, photo digital stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are, like, the high-end creme de la creme of a print. Yeah. Um, and usually it's a lot of times artists will do that if they have a really, like, beautiful piece of work that they're proud of and they want more people to have access to it. They'll make prints of that, which is totally fine. Um, but there can be some pitfalls to this, <laughs> which we will discuss. Oh, gosh. Um, it is a little bit of a step up from paper prints, but a step but down, obviously, from originals. Um, Giclés can sell for thousands of dollars, um, and they expand the market, uh, of art to the lowest rung of collectors. So it's more affordable for people to be able to buy a $500 to $700 print mm-hmm. as opposed to a $10,000 painting. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so it's a really lucrative form, uh, for artists to sell large quantities and to be able to get a little bit more generation of income that way. Um, So before long, at least half of the artwork in Howell's shop was White's. As White's empire mounted with more high-profile deals, like a tribute to Princess Diana and a Warner Brothers 70th anniversary of The Wizard of Oz, um, Howell's sales began to grow. Within several years after they had begun working together, Howell was selling upwards of $60,000 of his work per month. Oh my God, per month? Per month. Month. So you're thinking like all these Gicle prints are a minimum $1,000 and yeah. then his original are, are like $10,000. That's crazy. That's bananas. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So Howell got herself a new house on a cul-de-sac <laughs> oh in a God. gated community and a new white BMW with of all course. these sales she's making. Of course. Now, one day, Howell stopped by White Studio to have him personalize a G-Clay print for someone. So this is another thing that gallerists like to do. If they have a high-profile client, they might ask you to, like, write a little something extra on the back of a painting or a print or write a note to include in there because they're a customer that comes back all the time and you want to know that they're super appreciated and the artist knows of their relationship, right? Not totally out of the norm. Now, when Howell handed White the print, he thought something was amiss. He held the print, which was called Someone's Pretty Baby, and noticed that the canvas felt super fucking cheap, and the signature did not look like his. 
When he pressed her, she stated, I got this from you. Okay. It's like, this doesn't look like my handwriting. And why does this canvas feel so weird? There's like different variations of canvas in terms of like weights and like what it's made out of, like linen, cotton, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, So you can tell a cheap canvas. A cheap canvas is thin. It's rough and gross. Yeah. Um, And when you print onto that, you will see texture that you don't want to see. So he knew this was like not a good quality copy. Now, shitty copies of artists work being printed like overseas and counterfeiting is nothing new. Um, White had actually caught business owners overseas in China counterfeiting his work before. So White decided to look into this just to see where had it come from and if maybe it was like accidentally printed at a place that was not copacetic. Yeah. He called Howell's gallery assistant. I've been a gallery assistant. <laughs> Let me tell you, they don't pay you enough to tell the truth. So <laughs> nice. um, so he called Howell's gallery assistant, who let him know that someone complained recently that they received a print with duplicate edition numbers. Okay. So say you buy a stack of 10 pretty babies. You're going to give them out for a holiday Christmas party to all of your employees. You receive them, and you notice it's supposed to be 1 out of 10, but you have... A couple that say 7 out of 10, 7 out of 10, 7 out of 10. There should not be duplicate prints with the same numbers. Right. That's the whole point of a fucking number system. Yeah. (laughs) So the gallery assistant let that drop. And then the assistant also stated that he was pretty sure that Howell Howell was copying White's prints. He's like, I'm pretty sure she's copying her herself. Wow. And he goes, excuse me? (laughs) Oh, my God. So White decides to hire a private detective to do some fucking cheater-style reconnaissance work. <laughs> Wearing a wire, the detective showed up at Gallery HB <laughs> and recorded himself buying a print of Playing Around for $2,000. Howell told Detective Hans she had sent it to White for embellishment and call him, and she would call him uh, when it was returned. So two weeks later, the private eye received a voicemail from Howell telling him that the gicle was ready. He says, I look forward to seeing you and the expression on your face, Howell trilled, when you see your new embellished Todd White playing around print. Okay. Now, the gut-wrenching part of this whole story is that Howell never contacted White about personalization. So, who was writing on all of these prints? Um. So, White decided to hatch a plan. White solicited the help of his lawyer, Keith Davidson, and two men he knew from his martial arts gym, his manager, Bryce Eddy, and an off-duty LAPD officer named Mark Morales. Nice. The plan was simple. The three men would retrieve White's work and get Howell to sign a settlement agreement barring her from ever selling White's art again. Damn. She would agree to relinquish all of his work that she still had in her possession and required... To her to give up her lease at her gallery. Oh, shit. Yeah. So very similar to some of the things you were talking about in our last episode. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Where you're just like showing them like sign this. Yeah. So on August 2nd, after notifying the hotel manager of of their plans, uh, which Hyatt declined to comment, her gallery was inside a hotel, which is very cheap. Um, (laughs) Eddie Davidson... And Morales strode past the scandaled tourist shop in the <laughs> in the lobby to make their way to the gallery. And upon entering, the gallery employee told them that Howell was at the hospital with her mother. 
Uh-huh. Morella said that he was a buyer from a br- the Brazilian consulate, eager to buy one of White's works. Okay, we have a high-profile person coming from Brazil consulate who wants a print that's a couple thousand dollars. What are you going to do? Leave the hospital immediately and be there in <laughs> 10 minutes to sell this print. Oh, my God. Fucking gallerous. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. So she arrives and Eddie approaches her and says, we're here to discuss some important matters related to Todd's work. Immediately she's like, fuck. Oops. <laughs> now, Howell's recount of this is very different. And this is where we get a little bit of the interesting case. Okay. Uh, so Peggy Howell said that she arrived there and White had actually sent a posse of hired goons to commandeer his work, steal company documents, including a client list, and attempt to transfer the gallery lease over to White. Okay. So the interesting thing about this is she called the police. (laughs) I mean, good for her. Like, I probably would have too. She called the police, but they didn't file anything. Oh. Weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Because we'll talk about the evidence of this okay. against who who's actually accusing who of what. Yeah. But she called the police. They didn't do anything. So instead, Howell decided to sue. She decided to sue for $5.5 million in damages, as well as an injunction prohibiting White from using the gallery client list. Because okay. that is the bread and butter of any gallery. Okay. There is part of me, like, honestly, like... I, this whole time you've been telling the story, I'm going back and forth on like who the bad guy is here, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's, there's part of me that's like, why would you file a $5.5 million civil Mm -hmm. lawsuit? Like Mm -hmm. a civil suit is no joke. You cannot just like frivolously file these. Um, Do, does everything that get filed have enough standing? You know, not Mm -hmm. necessarily not, but like. At the same time, like, that is not something that is just, like, frivolously filed without cause. Yeah. Which now has me, I was like, Howell's kind of the bad guy, but now I'm kind of leaning the other way that maybe she's not. Oh, you're going to do so many flip-floppings in this Yeah, thing. yeah. So, you know, they came in there, they took all of his work, they took some paperwork, they didn't sign over the lease, but they got pretty far. So she said that she was extremely afraid for her life, terrified for her safety. She was coerced into signing a bunch of stuff. Um, She suspected that the entire thing was designed to eliminate her from White's life and allow him, um, who now worked with a a private manager instead of a gallerist, um, to kind of take over the gallery and make it just a, a white gallery only. Gotcha. Now, later that month, she filed that lawsuit against White and then... She decided to up the ante to $7.5 million for physical and emotional trauma. Okay. So she stated that the settlement she had signed that night that they came in and, like, told her off and, like, you have to sign all of his work over to us had no merit as far as she was concerned and that she could still go about her business. So she kept the gallery open and kept selling his work that was left that they didn't. You know, weren't able to take. Okay. Um, she did have some stuff of his at her house too, which is actually nice. a really big no-no. Yeah. In, I mean in the art world, that's a big no-no. Yeah. <laughs> but seemed to work out for her in this case. <laughs> kind of. Now, back to the men who showed up who were the supposed goons. Um, 
they actually recorded the entire thing. Oh, okay. (laughs) And everything that they said and did to Howell was not under any duress. They recorded it. They they gave it to the, you know, the lawyers and they were like, this is exactly what happened. Yeah. So there wasn't any like, you know, forcing, you better fucking sign this. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't any sort of like that kind of language on there at all. Okay. It's like, we're here to talk to you about Todd White and we're going to take his work and you're going to sign this off. And that's what happened. Now, White decided to counter Sue Howell for $5 million in punitive damages for copyright violation and fraud. Okay. (laughs) In October, Howell struck another blow when she filed the class action lawsuit and began to assemble co-plaintiffs claiming that White had trained his former manager, Mary Denault, and others to sign his name. Okay. So now she's saying that she received forged work from him to sell with not his actual name on it and that Mary Denault signed it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. In a deposition, Denault backs up this assertion saying that she did sign for White hundreds of times on copies of his work. Wow. Now, later in December, during a deposition with White's attorney, Howell confessed that she had never gotten White to sign or embellish the copy that she had sold to the private investigator. Okay. She confessed to that. She's like, sure. I didn't do it. Um, she also admitted that despite her allegations of being assaulted, she actually had no visible bruises, but she was assaulted, but she didn't have visible bruises. Okay. And she revealed right. that her insurance company had declined her robbery claim. Okay. That's interesting. So I'm starting to think maybe she wasn't robbed. <laughs> hmm. She even stated that she used a, okay, this is, she's confessed to this in a deposition. She used a liquid stain remover to wipe off the ink on the copy numbers and rewrote them to make them more desirable. So, like, smaller runs. Okay. So. <laughs> Interesting. She's confessing to all this stuff. Um, now, it appears that the lawsuits were settled out of court, but I was not able to find the detailed information on, like, what this actually, you know, happened. Just barely one year after that settlement, White became a defendant in a $5 million class action lawsuit that claims he deceived thousands of art buyers into buying reproductions of his art. Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) White is said to have acknowledged he was selling reproductions, but the class action asserts that there's a difference between an authentic and an inauthentic copy of an original. Okay. And this all comes down to that. What is what is the term? Get so it starts with a G. Gicle. Gicle. Gicle Prince. Yeah. This all, does this all come down to the mm-hmm, Gicle? Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he was basically being sued for making copies of his own work in an incorrect way. Okay. <laughs> the plaintiffs in the case stated that the reproductions weren't authentic. Each one was supposed to be hand-signed by White himself, but instead White had others, including his former manager, trained to paint Mr. White's signature. It was further alleged that White never personally touched many of the Gicle prints and said to number somewhere between 600 and 1,200 that Ooh. were signed not by him. Okay. Now, this is actually a common practice. It's confusing. Lots of artists have people help them with assembling and signing work. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon. Um, there are painters during the fucking Renaissance all the way up into – Andy Warhol's factory days in the 1960s where people were signing off on other people's works and assembling them and putting them Mm -hmm. together. 
That's like the role of an artist's assistant. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not uncommon. But there are certain laws in certain states that do not allow for that when you are trying to like sell them in mass produced mm-hmm. quantities for money. Um, so art has become like this big business and warranties under the Uniform Commercial Code get routinely discussed among art lawyers regarding this kind of practice of signing off um, someone else's name. Yeah. These laws govern a set of business laws that regulate financial contracts and tra- transactions that are employed across multiple states. So this particular lawsuit claims violations of California's Business and Professional Code, as well as California's Consumer Legal Remedy Act, Section 1770. And this particular section provides consumers with protection against false advertising, fraud, and other unfair business practices. So basically what they're saying is that because he claims that he is authenticating it, signing it, and embellishing it himself – um, which in reality he's not, that's actually false advertisement and fraud. Okay. So they're not getting something that is real and authentic according to the law. Yeah. Now, this kind of brings up larger arguments about art as commercial products. Um, copy sure. left versus copyright arguments also comes into this. And really, if you want to get super into it, it also brings about the larger idea of contemporary art and like con- like conceptuality and just like current art as a whole. Yeah. Like what is a piece of art? Yeah. Are yeah. these prints a piece of art or are they products? Yeah. Because that blurs the line. Um, I didn't really see how that particular lawsuit panned out, but he's still working. So I'm assuming not too bad. <laughs> interesting um yeah so when you're when you're a big fancy artist think about commodity and mass production and what that means to you um because you might run into being a fraud of a fraud of a fraud wow yeah that's really interesting because it to me it does not sound i mean i already said that i was kind of like flip-flopping through the whole yeah oh yeah i think they're both terrible i was gonna say it does not sound like anybody comes out looking Mm -hmm. like the good guy there like at all i follow this amazing uh instagram that is called jerry gagosian that makes fun of the gallery world yeah and there's a lot of things up there you know a lot of memeing yeah. of of things like this and it's like these people like these gallery owners and even art managers to agree are out there just like trying to hawk these artists work they're trying to build a list of clients so they can just be like all right we're gonna hit all these people yeah. Or yeah, yeah. until we we fucking sell something. Yeah. You know, they're out there hustling for absolutely no fucking reason. Oh my god. The whole thing is just is such a scam in a lot of ways. And so I like sticking to my tiny little yeah. art yeah. niche world yeah. where I'm just like, I don't give a fuck if I show in a big gallery. Yeah. Who the fuck cares? The art <laughs> world is a weird place, man. It's weird times. I love it and also hate it. <laughs> <laughs> With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. For this one, <laughs> we are going way, way, way back. Ooh, usually I go in the way back time machine. <laughs> to 1571. Holy fuck! Yes. Are we talking about Chimabui? No. Okay. <laughs> um, we are talking about the bad boy of painting himself. <gasps> Michelangelo Marisi de Caravaggio. Oh, I love Caravaggio. <laughs> Caravaggio is like, I, so let me first start off by saying that I. A man complex. <laughs> did not know all of this stuff about Caravaggio. Oh, God. Um, He's a madman. He is, and he is very much like, I saw him so many places described as like the punk of art history. Oh, God. And when I saw yes. that, I was like, this is right up to Janelle's yes. alley. I'm sure you already I know, actually about know a lot about Caravaggio. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is like Janelle's but spirit I animal. I from another perspective. Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah. I'm not out in the streets like being violent, but you know, yeah. in my mind, I am. <laughs> so uh, Caravaggio was born in Milan. Um, he and his parents moved to Caravaggio to escape the plague that was tearing through the city at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, sadly, their efforts were in vain, and both of Caravaggio's parents died of the plague when he was just a young child. At age 13, Caravaggio began a four-year apprenticeship under the painter Simone Pirzano. Um, when this ended, he made his way to Rome, nearly penniless, the life of a starving artist. <laughs> yeah. And in this time, like, literally, yeah, literally starving artist. If you did not have a fucking pope backing you up, yes. you were out in the streets, sir. <laughs> we will get to that. <laughs> um, now, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. this is a time when Catholicism was life. I mean, like, yeah. period. Especially in Rome. Yeah. Like, we're talking the Vatican. dictates all. Especially yeah. art. <laughs> um. There was also, like, this great call for art to fill these huge churches that were being built all across Rome. Um, so art in general was, like, in high demand. Mm -hmm. And Caravaggio was able to find jobs, like, here and there for artists. And he was, like, like you said, like, mass producing their artwork. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you brought that up because I'm like, this is, except, I mean, obviously back in the 1500s, they didn't have, you know, printers and shit that could do that. They were no. literally recreating by yeah. hand. They trained people very specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you're here for this because there's some of, I'm, I'm not going to do, like, a super deep dive on the art history aspect of Caravaggio mm -hmm. because it's not entirely pertinent to the story. Yeah. But it's I, interesting, but not it's, totally pertinent. It's interesting, yeah. <laughs> but it is, yeah, it's not like 
totally relevant. It, it kind, kind of, but not really. Okay. So his early years in Rome largely consisted of still lifes of bowls and fruit and flowers. And a lot of Classic. this, <laughs> again, had to do with mass producing. Like the person that he was working for, that's what they did. Um, his earliest paintings thought to survive include Young Bacchus and Boy with a Basket of Fruit, which many scholars believe to be self-portraits. Caravaggio's artwork was like pretty, for the time, pretty out of the ordinary. Oh, yeah. He explored naturalism, but rather than depicting like this perfected, idealized version, which when you look at them now, I it kind of lands in that weird uncanny valley for me where yes, it's like definitely. these very the perfect human. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of what it is. And that is kind of what they were doing at the time. He looked at what he saw in the world around him and painted that. His subjects looked realistic and they looked like ordinary people. Mm -hmm. Caravaggio also chose to use a drastic and dramatic contrast between light and shadow to create a more emotional painting. Churascurio. What is it? Churascurio. Okay. <laughs> See, this is why I'm glad that you're here. I was like, Janelle, I'm going to be talking out of my ass for like 10 minutes and Janelle is going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so when you look at his paintings, I do, enc- I, we'll talk a little bit more about specific paintings in a minute, but like, I encourage you to look up some of Caravaggio's work because you will see it's like straight up black backgrounds with this action happening in the foreground and it does make it a lot more dramatic. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's definitely like... Um- you see that a lot with like Dutch painting mm-hmm. and Flemish painting. They have like extreme light and dark. Yeah. It's very interesting. Many of his pieces depict a single dramatic moment in time, many times with the religious subject matter. Again, Catholicism. A lot of his work is pretty violent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like very violent. <laughs> there's a, There was a weird thing happening during this time period because there's also like Jenna Lessie was a female painter. She was doing like really violent work too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like the violent moments oftentimes were things like um, the moment that Christ was taken to be crucified, Mm -hmm. right? Like that is, but in a very dramatic, violent way. One of my favorite pieces, like if I had to choose, here's the thing. (laughs) I am not super big into like the Renaissance Baroque style. I recognize like. You got to find the weirdos in that. Yes. (laughs) And I recognize like that is the foundation for like modern artwork. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, like you cannot deny that people making these paintings in the Renaissance really set the stage for literally everything to come afterwards. Mm hmm. So I'll say it's not like my favorite, but if I had to choose uh, my favorite paintings, it would be either Judith beheading Holofernes, which is like, um, she's literally, again, it's like one of the most violent. She's just, it's literally her cutting the head off of Mm -hmm. Holofernes um, and there's like blood coming out of the neck and it's like, Mm -hmm. it's pretty gruesome. Yeah. There's Um, a lot of amazing moments. (laughs) The other other one that I really like is called The Calling of St. Matthew, um, which is very different. It's not all that violent. It Mm -hmm. kind of depicts this group of men sitting around the table and somebody coming to like get somebody from the table. The reason I like this is because of the realism in the painting. Mm -hmm. Again, I mean, we talked about this sort of idealized vision that people were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. I looked at this painting and was like, these look like real people. Yeah. Like they look like people that would be walking around the streets in the 1500s. They don't look misshapen or like 
Yeah, you overly know, elongated torsos and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's a very popular of the time period. Yes, and the, the motion that they were in looks very natural. Like, it's not... And I think that's why I like that particular one, because these Renaissance paintings get so uh, almost surreal, like, in the way they depict people. I... I was trying to find the name of it, but pretty much all of Giuseppe Archimboldo's work. So he takes like fruit and vegetables and puts them together to make them look like people. Yes. You got to find the weird shit like that. That yes. He's a Renaissance painter. Yeah. You, you would look at that now. You'd be like, that's fucking contemporary shit. Yeah. That's like an Ivan Albright. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You do have to kind of kind of find the weirdos. Yeah. Which so is and what I gravitate towards. And there's a lot of female painters that were uh, um, happening during this period, but are left you know, out of history because they're not allowed to technically be painting, but they also have just like, I keep saying Artemis, Artemisia Genelleshi. Her work is just, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's also very violent and very feminist forward, which yeah. is like, you don't think about that in the Renaissance period. Um, but she, honest to God, her work is better than most of the prolific male Renaissance As painters. is it. As is as the it case always most of the time. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so enough of that art history bullshit. Yeah, okay. Um, I digress. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's get into crime. Crime, crime, crime. Yeah. Crime, crime, crime. <laughs> I did want to give a little background because it kind of mm-hmm. like his life definitely. It's bananas. It's bananas. <laughs> but it definitely like I think translates in, in a way to how he was painting mm-hmm. and the things that he decided to paint. So in 2011, there was an exhibition at Rome State Archive that showcased the original handwritten police logs, legal and court uh, parchments, recounting Caravaggio's I love this. many brushes with the police. He was just a rambling man. Yeah. So this is likely not all-encompassing. I'm sure there are mm-hmm. some records that are lost to time. Um, and we only have extensive details on, like, a few of these occurrences. And also things that I'm sure he never got caught for. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so we're going to take them in order. Woo, these yes. all come from the BBC. Yes. So first... I'm so excited. <laughs> I hope that I get everything that you're excited about. If okay. I miss something, let me know. Okay. But. So on May 4th, 1598... Caravaggio was arrested around 2 to 3 a.m. near Piazza Navona for carrying a sword without a permit. You can't be up in those streets with those swords. You know what I mean? <laughs> Two years later, on November 19, 1600, on Via della Scrofa, Caravaggio beat a man with a stick and tore his cape. Um, I tear my cape at you, sir! <laughs> yeah, he's, that guy sued Caravaggio and won. Um, for the assault and the tearing oh, of his cape. I can just cape. imagine some dandy men on the street being yes. like, did you just tear my cape, sir? Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, like, um, one of the common themes is Caravaggio carrying a sword or a dagger or something. Oh, yeah. This was super he common. He really had little man syndrome. Like, yes. I wasn't exaggerating that. He really no. did. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff we're not going to go into, mm-hmm. like his sexuality yeah. and, you know, some of these other things. But one of the things, he oftentimes is seen with a sword. Mm-hmm. And a lo- this was pretty common at the time um, for people to carry them for not necessarily protection, but more status. for decoration. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, stat- yeah, status is a good word. Um, although... They were also dueling swords. Right? So like you could just challenge to somebody in the middle yeah. of the fucking street, yeah. you know? I yeah. bite my thumb at you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um okay. On October 2nd, 1601, Caravaggio and his friends were accused of insulting a man and attacking him with a sword near Piazza Campo Marzio. 
The next one we have a few more details on. Ooh, okay. So on April 24th, 1604, a waiter lodged a complaint saying Caravaggio assaulted him after he had served him artichokes at an inn on the Via Maddalena. Now, this is often described as like... Tell me more. Caravaggio <laughs> throwing the plate of artichokes at the guy. But um, this is the statement that the waiter, Pietro Antonio de Fasascia, gave to police at the time. This is what he said. Okay. Uh, tra- I should say this is all translated, translated. into English also, 15, from Latin. 1500s. Uh, yeah, where it's vastly different. <laughs> yeah, which you can tell because the first words say about 17 o'clock. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Which is like around lunchtime. A fortnight ago. <laughs> okay, so this is what he said. About 17 o'clock, the accused, together with two other people, was eating in the Moore's restaurant at La Madalena, where I work as a waiter. I brought them eight cooked artichokes, four cooked in butter, and four fried in oil. Okay. The accused asked me which were cooked in butter and which fried in oil, and I told him to smell them, which would easily enable him to tell the difference. <laughs> But also, why could you just fucking tell I him, guy? <laughs> he got angry and without saying anything more, grabbed an earthenware dish and hit me on the cheek at the level of my mustache. <laughs> Injuring me slightly. And then he got up and grabbed his friend's sword, which was lying on the table, intending perhaps to strike me with it. But I got up and came here to the police station to make a formal complaint. <laughs> Oh my god, I love it so much. So he gets mad. He throws this plate of artichokes at the level of his mustache. <laughs> oh my god. And the guy's like, I'm going to the police. <laughs> this is like a Monty Python fucking yes. skit. True. <laughs> True. Oh my god. Only a few months later, on October 19th, 1604, Caravaggio was arrested for throwing stones at a policeman. I mean... Yep. <laughs> that sounds about right. That sounds about Italian. <laughs> um, the following year, on May 28th, 1605, he was arrested for again for carrying a sword and a dagger without a permit on Via del Corso. Now, Caravaggio was released without being charged and had his weapons returned, which Interesting. in hindsight may have been a mistake. Yes, um, <laughs> it definitely is. This, again, is from the translated police report regarding the incident. Appeared before me, notary, in my office, Captain Pino, senior officer at the Capitol- Capitoline Police, who, acting in his official capacity, made <clears throat> the following report, namely... Today, at the seventh hour between two and three in the afternoon, I was on duty with my men patrolling the area, patrolling near the church of St. Ambrose on the Via del Corso when one by the name of Michelangelo came, which is literally everybody, (laughs) every man, um, came by carrying a sword and a dagger. I stopped him and asked him whether he had a permit to carry the said weapons, and he replied no. I arrested him and took him to prison and hereby give this report in due and correct form according to the law. Now, the report also included a sketch of the sword and dagger, which was kind of unusual. The BBC article theorizes that it may have been included if they had doubt that the weapons actually belonged to Caravaggio. Oh, okay. Um, So they were like taking record in case somebody was like, somebody stole my sword and dagger. It looks like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because at night the streets got a little scary and if something happened... And they were able to describe these weapons. They had like a scotch of it. Yeah. You may be wondering why he was simply released and not charged with anything. Um, well, his 
pat- one of his patrons was Cardinal Francesco Del Monte, who happened to be governor of the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, Del Monte had previously <laughs> instructed police to allow Caravaggio to carry weapons. And when they were able to confirm this was true, the police let him go and like gave his weapons back. Mm-hmm. Like done deal. Yeah. It's the benefits of having high up people in your pocket. <laughs> and this helped him out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Which like, also maybe, you know, led to him being able to be such a terrible person. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two months later, on July 29th, 1605, a Vatican notary accused Caravaggio of striking him from behind with a weapon. During this time... <laughs> this... <laughs> Oh, boy. During this time, uh, Caravaggio was also taken to court on a few occasions for libel, Hmm. specifically involving a rival painter named Giovanni Baglione, who had also accused Caravaggio of hiring assassins to kill him. That's about right. (laughs) Um, So Giovanni Baglione and Baglione's friend named Tommaso Mausolini decided to take him to court for libel. Now, from time to time... Caravaggio would write some, they call them satirical poems, but I'm like, they also describe it as more of like the modern day um, sort of like Facebook trolling, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You just put out a pamphlet. Yeah. Just put out a pamphlet. Which is what he did. He like wrote all this shit in a pamphlet. It was like, fuck this guy. And then handed them out. (laughs) On the square. On the square, yeah. Would you like to hear about how I do not fucking like this gentleman? (laughs) Please read further. So he wrote some of these satirical poems following a poor reception of a Baglione altarpiece describing what Baglione could do with his artwork. Is it put it somewhere? Quote, (laughs) wipe your arse with them or stuff them up the cunt of Mao's wife because he isn't isn't fucking her anymore with his donkey cock. It's like, fuck this guy. And I'm up your white ass. Donkey dick. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. And again, you know, obviously, like all of this stuff had to be translated, right? And I love that there is like a direct translation for because he isn't fucking her anymore (laughs) with his donkey cock. Like. Okay, and I oh, wonder, like, the, the person pr- who studied yeah. Latin for so long. <laughs> so he's like, oh my god, this is the moment where I actually get to translate something cool. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, he, and he did this kind of stuff quite often. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded like he had a lot of time on his hands. <laughs> if you thought maybe it was a mistake um, nope. to give Caravaggio his weapons back. This mistake for me. <laughs> you're going to think that even more after the next run with the law. Mm-hmm. On May 29th, 1606, <clears throat> Caravaggio met up with Renuccio Tomassoni, who was like a sort of like a gangster from a really wealthy gangster mm-hmm. family. They were called um, merchants back then. Wink, 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 merchants. wink, Merchants. Yeah. <laughs> Mobsters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, now, there is, like, there is a lot of speculation around this incident. They kind of speculate, like, what started the incident. Some say it was in regards to a gambling debt. Other people attribute it to just, like, generally short tempers that both men had um, because they had both previously been in brawls after arguments, like, with each other. <laughs> um, some even attribute the argument to a game of palacorda, which is, like, 
kind of kind of like tennis. Mm-hmm. There are also tales of jealousy and an argument about uh, Philidae Melandroni, who had posed for Caravaggio in several paintings. She was also a sex worker, and Tomassoni was her pimp. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. that was part of the thing. However, this argument came about, the two entered a duel at the Palacorda. <laughs> um, do. It was it was on the Palacorda court of a of the French ambassador to Rome. <laughs> like if you want to talk about some bougie shit, it's like yeah. let's duel, let's go to the French ambassador's place, and <laughs> <laughs> fucking stab you. <laughs> uh, Caravaggio, no doubt, was using the sword that he was so commonly seen with. Mm-hmm. Um, after the duel, uh, Caravaggio came out the winner, uh, leaving Tomassoni to die. Now, according to biography, quote. The barber surgeon, <laughs> which was a thing back then. Yes. Um, the barber surgeon's report for Tomasoni's death reported he bled out through the femoral artery in his groin, suggesting Caravaggio had tried to castrate him, which in turn suggests the fight was over a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk a lot about like different injuries in dueling sort of having these n- different meanings mm-hmm. and like castration generally meant something having to do with a woman. Mm-hmm. Now, up to this point... Caravaggio had been, like, sort of shielded from the law with the influence of his wealthy patrons. Mm -hmm. However, killing a member of a wealthy, like, gangster mobster family made this problem a little bit trickier to escape. So Caravaggio decided to flee, leaving Rome and landing in Malta. In the meantime, Tomassoni's family demanded justice for the murder, and Caravaggio was sentenced in in absentia by Pope Paul V to beheading and authorized anyone who recognized him to legally carry out the sentence. Yep. Sounds about right. Which again was like, <laughs> was a thing. Mm-hmm. But just like the the <laughs> the image of something like, is that Caravaggio? Let's get him. And like beheading him <laughs> in the street. Yeah. Take his head. Yeah. <laughs> Although he was now exiled, Caravaggio continued his successful painting career on the run, essentially. He... Made sure to take his temper with him, though, because he eventually found himself in trouble once again when he attacked Fra Giovanni Rodamonte Roero, a senior knight in the Order of St. John. Oh, that's a bad point. <laughs> that's a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> he, at the time, was, like, attempting to become a knight also, mm-hmm. um, but ended up getting kicked out. Carvaggio go stab another knight if you want to be yeah. a knight. Duh. Caravaggio ended up serving some prison time, but somehow managed to escape yet again, uh, this time heading for Sicily. He's- ah, the land of my people. <laughs> Sicily. Yes. Ah, nothing but crooks. <laughs> he stayed there for a little bit before heading to Naples, where Roero would later meet up with him there, exacting his revenge and disfiguring Caravaggio's face. It is also worth mentioning that around the time that Caravaggio left Malta, people around him sort of began to notice his behavior becoming more erratic. Mm -hmm. You talk about him being a madman. And like, even before Mm -hmm. that, like, he was just a little bonkers. Mm -hmm. But the people like around him started seeing even more drastic mood changes. Yeah, there's definitely something wrong with him mentally. (laughs) Yeah. And it, to me, it seems to be more of like a like a paranoia thing, mm-hmm. a paranoia thing as time went on. Like he wasn't safe in any one place too long. Obviously, this was like due in large part to being on the run for a murder conviction. Yeah. But like <laughs> if you have mental illness that like 
having an actual legitimate reason to be paranoid is only going to exacerbate the paranoia. Yeah. Naples proved to be a little bit too much for Caravaggio, and he began attempting to secure a papal pardon so he could return to Rome. Um, He did still have connections in high places over there and definitely utilized them to their fullest extent. Caravaggio even went so far as to send paintings to people with the most influence as sort of a like, if you I'm let sorry. me, what? Yeah, an apology, but also like, if you let me come back, like I'll pay more paintings. Look for at you. these. You could have all this and more. <laughs> it is said during this time that Caravaggio painted David with the head of Goliath. The painting depicts David with a sorrowful gaze holding a severed head on. Oh, no, this is not the one with the severed head on the platter. He's just holding the severed head out by mm-hmm. the hair. The severed head is, in fact, Caravaggio's head. See, he's saying sorry in a very subtle way. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's him being like, th- so this is like the apology. I'm metaphorically saying sorry. Yeah. You Look can how- have my quote unquote head. Yeah. Look how sad my head looks in this picture. <laughs> Please don't actually behead me. <laughs> um, scholars believe that this painting was sent to Cardinal Scipione Borg- Borghese, who happened to be the nephew of the Pope and mm-hmm. also had the power to uh, grant or withdraw pardons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole TV series about that Borgia or however the hell it's called. Borghese? Yeah, uh, family. Scipione Borghese? Maybe yeah. it's Borghese? I don't know. Um, Jeremy Dude, Irons over is here. in it. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. Was it a documentary or a movie? That was a movie. Oh. It was a movie based on their life. But um, Interesting. they're debaucherous. Yes. Yes. That's so. the thing. It's like... Mm-hmm. At the- Really, at this point in time, like, there was not somebody who was not getting their pockets lined. Oh, or, no. And know, there were so many popes fucking. Yes. So many popes fucking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, all of this pleading seemed to work, and word was sent to Caravaggio that a papal pardon was forthcoming. So Caravaggio began to make his way back to Rome. It is agreed by scholars that Caravaggio died on his way back to Rome in July 1610. But how he died, again, is like... Mystery. Yeah, (laughs) it's kind of the subject for debate. um, And it has been for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Now, Caravaggio was suffering from a fever on his way back uh, to Rome. And traditionally, it had been assumed that he died of syphilis, which, to be honest with you, like, would kind of explain... Why he was going crazy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That eats away your brain after a mm-hmm. while. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you're hanging around with someone, you're fighting over uh, a prostitute. Yeah. Yeah, you've yeah. syphilis, bro. <laughs> um, there, there was also some theorizing about other diseases, including malaria or brucellosis or... Malaria is hard to catch in Italy. <laughs> Dude, I, this is just what scholars, I assume, yeah. maybe incorrectly, that scholars are smarter than I am. <laughs> I mean, maybe if you travel to but, Malta, but if you yeah. had malaria that long, you'd die quicker. That's what I would think, too. I think syphilis. Yeah. <laughs> I do um, think syphilis. Or the fever being a result of an infected sword sword wound mm-hmm. or lead poisoning from paint. Oh, yeah. Which oh, I know, which also has like a madman effect yes. too, right? That's what mad hatters, that's what it refers yeah, to. All, the, yeah. all those chemicals and shit. Because wasn't that part of the reason Picasso kind of like went a little bonkers and cut his ear off? Oh, that's a different person. <laughs> Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah. No, sorry. Not Picasso. Van Gogh. I mean, the reason Van Gogh Picasso went a crazy. was an abuser. He, yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> Van yeah. Gogh, I think he also had a mental health problem, too. Yeah. But yeah, 
I can, For some reason, I'm thinking I can hear paint. my sculpture teacher echoing in my ear. Make sure you keep your mask on. Inhaling that shit's bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like a fuck. Just let me die in peace. Just let me get the cancer, man. <laughs> so, interestingly <clears throat> enough, documents released by the Vatican in 2002 Whoa, okay. strongly suggest that it was, in fact, the Tomasoni family who sent assassins <gasps> to hunt Caravaggio down <laughs> and kill him as revenge. Oh so, gosh. like, this is actually, like, the more substantiated mm-hmm. version of the story. Scandalous. But again, we're also talking about stuff that happened in the 1600s. Yeah. And like, nobody can remember that. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, obviously, like, the Vatican has records that go back that far, mm-hmm. whether they want to release them or not, whether the records are were kept well enough to, like, have any of that information. It seems like the assassin story is the most likely mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. I think he happened to have a fever at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, who wasn't walking around there on the brink of death with a fever right. daily? Yeah. <laughs> so I do, I do still think, like, syphilis... <laughs> Or maybe, like, lead poisoning. Yeah. Definitely the way he was acting was something else. Something else was an factor there. Yeah, yeah. However he died, Caravaggio forever became the bad boy of painting. Yes. Um, Interestingly enough, Baglione, if you remember him, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Caravaggio's longtime rival became one of his first biographers. Interesting. Yeah. So he actually, I mean, when you hate someone so much, you do yeah. know that much about them. True. True. So. <laughs> yeah. So he actually wrote like one of the <laughs> earliest histories of Caravaggio's life, that's and hilarious. so yeah, I think I think that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. But that is the uh, the story of the bad boy painting. Did I did I hit all the big you did pieces? Yes, okay. I enjoyed that thoroughly. I love that story. Every time I'm in an art history class, sometimes we digress into that, into like weird art historical things. Caravaggio always comes up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like not, I think there is, it's tempting to really like idealize these sort of founding, founding fathers of painting, right? yeah. Mm -hmm. But there is definitely, you know, obviously like we just talked about with Van Gogh, like there's definitely a darker side to things. It is not as always straightforward, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially in a time where, like, right and wrong were a little bit more fluid and, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, dueling on the streets. Was a thing. You know, was they a were thing. lawless. They were a lawless time, even yeah. though there were police everywhere. Still very lawless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just did not know any of this until I started looking into it. So oh, I really? thought this oh, was, man, yeah, I yeah. thought this was really fun. I originally was going to be, my first thought for this episode was actually to do the heist of the scream. Oh um, yeah. Cause that has been stolen like four times, oh, six yeah. times or something. It's cursed. It is <laughs> also one of my favorite paintings, but mm-hmm. I mean, I have a lot of favorites, but you know, yeah. and then I happened to someone on this one's like, Oh, Oh, yeah. Oh, it's okay. Okay. Wackadoo. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, before you beca- decide to become an artist. Before you challenge someone to a duel on the street. Yeah, There you go. Before you challenge uh. someone to a duel on the street, why don't you check out this podcast? Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the new podcast, We're All Just Pretending. It's a podcast that has elements of Dear Abby with a twist of post-secret. Every episode, I'll read listener questions and provide advice and insight as a friend. My own pod friends will even join in and offer their advice on parenting, relationships, and even give you really bad advice on purpose. Since we all have secrets to share, there'll also be a segment focusing on letting the skeletons out of your closet. 
If you're looking for advice or want to share a secret, head to allpretendingpod.com. And remember, we're all just pretending here. Well, that has been our episode for this week. Uh, we don't have really any announcements. We have some forthcoming. I know we said that last episode. We're still working Just on it. Just gotta fucking wait for it, okay? Chill out, guys. Patience. Uh, do you have anything? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Sakshevsky, The Enigma. Just one extra one for the road. Just to make sure. <laughs> um, this has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Arrivederci. Au revoir. <laughs> Is there another fancy one uh, that artists ciao. use? Ciao! Ciao, ciao Bella! Ciao, Bella. Ciao.